This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. The Informer Daily is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. At Joy 94.9, we'd like to pay our ongoing respects to Elders past, present and emerging. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. This is the Informer Daily from Monday, the 18th of May, 2020. I'm your host, Arian Potts. Today. Last week saw the arrest of a man for the 1988 murder of Scott Johnson. We take a look at how our current system addresses hate crimes. The internet is changing how we talk. We learned what's changing and why with best-selling author and New York Times contributor Gretchen McCullough. And earlier this spring, many cities around the world were hit by Extinction Rebellion climate change protests. It's a crisis that's not going away, and we take you back to a protest here in Melbourne. But first, this update. This is Dee Mason with Joy 94.9's COVID-19 update for Monday the 18th of May. A coalition of 62 nations has backed Australia and the European Union's request for an independent inquiry into the origin of the COVID-19 pandemic. Australia was the first country to call for an inquiry, drawing condemnation from Beijing, accusing Australia of launching a political attack. The annual World Health Assembly meeting takes place tonight and is likely this topic will be raised. The CEO of the aged care provider in charge of Newmarch House, which saw 18 COVID-19 deaths and a further 71 positive cases, says residents who tested positive should have been taken from the facility. Grant Millard claims the decision to keep caring for residents who tested positive instead of sending them to hospitals was made jointly with New South Wales Health and Federal Aged Care Minister Richard Colbeck. The hospital would have been the safer option given their more established infection control practices, according to Millard. AFL teams have resumed group training sessions with players allowed to train in groups of 10. Full contact training will start up on May 25th and the season will start on June the 11th. While restrictions surrounding training have eased for AFL players, they will be facing much tighter restrictions than the general public when not on the playing field. Players will be banned from outside sports, going to restaurants when they reopen and taking their kids to playgrounds. A dozen McDonald's restaurants across Melbourne's north and west have closed after a delivery driver tested positive for COVID-19. The restaurants will be deep cleaned before reopening. Around 200 staff have been told not to return to work for the next two weeks and to get tested. A man in his 60s died in New South Wales overnight, bringing the national death toll to 99. The man had underlying health conditions and was in hospital when he passed away. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews has announced a $2.7 billion construction blitz to boost the industry and protect jobs. The funding will be spread across hundreds of different projects, including public housing upgrades and road maintenance. Queensland's border will likely open up around September, according to Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk. The state is waiting for the go-ahead from the Chief Medical Officer, wanting to avoid a second wave from transmission across the state line. Restrictions are easing today in Western Australia with regional borders decreasing from 13 to 4 and up to 20 people allowed to gather inside. Pubs, restaurants and cafes will be opening for dine-in services for up to 20 guests and weddings will now be able to include 30 people if held outside. There is still no confirmation on when people should expect the state border to open up. 
This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Last week, we saw the arrest of Scott White, a 49-year-old man for the 1988 murder of Scott Johnson. This was one of the most famous cold cases for the Australian LGBT community, as it became emblematic of the fact that the legal system could not be relied on to deliver justice to gay and gender non-conforming people. While many are celebrating this as a turning point, others, including Scott Johnson's brother, Steve, and his many supporters, have been vigilant to remind everyone that there is still work to be done, and many other cases where LGBT victims of hate crimes have not found justice. The informer was interested in how our current system addresses hate crimes, and so we talked to Professor Gail Mason, who is a criminology professor at the University of Sydney and coordinator of the Australian Hate Crime Network, to talk about what the Scott Johnson case means in terms of law reform, and to get a picture of where Australia's hate crime laws are at and how they could be best updated. I think what the Scott Johnson case shows is that in New South Wales, but across Australia more broadly, we really need to take the problem of hate crime more seriously. Uh, You know, it has taken over 30 years to get justice or what we hope will be justice in this case. And that sends a really bad message to the LGBTI communities, but also to other targeted communities in Australia who are also the victims of crimes that are motivated by hatred or prejudice simply because of their their difference. Um, So we can see this, I think, as a watershed moment or a real pivotal point where we have the opportunity to reflect on the shortcomings of the past, but to actually use this uh, current arrest um, against the murderer or potential murderer of Scott Johnson and to say, well, how can we build on this? How can we take this as a moment of of momentum and actually look at what it is that we need to do in Australia to provide better laws for the victims of hate crime? Can you tell me about how uh, New South Wales' laws deal with hate crimes at present? So we do have some hate crime laws in New South Wales. Probably the main provision that we have is Section 93Z in the Crimes Act. And what that provision does is it makes it a crime to threaten or incite violence against another person or group of persons on the grounds of their race, their religious belief, sexual orientation, gender identity, intersex status, or having HIV AIDS. And this provision was put into place in 2018, and it was specifically designed to overcome the limitations of the earlier law. And I think there's been a lot of hope that this provision will be used effectively to address uh, behaviour that's threatening or inciting violence against uh, groups of people. Unfortunately, as far as I'm aware, there have been no successful prosecutions using 93Z of the Crimes Act. So that makes it difficult then to, I think, for the for communities to feel that the hatred that's been directed towards them, that they're experiencing, um, that there's actually a legitimate legal redress being provided for that hatred. There are a number of states in Australia, including um, Victoria, New South Wales and the Northern Territory that also have sentencing laws. And what these laws do is they make it an aggravating factor at sentencing if a crime is motivated by hatred or prejudice um, towards a group of people, such as people of a particular race, 
religion or sexual orientation. And these are important laws, but the limitation of these laws is that they don't kick in until somebody has already been convicted of a crime and then they're about to be sentenced. And then at that point, the court will consider whether or not um, the crime was motivated by hatred or prejudice. But the problem with those laws is that it's not made, they don't make a public statement about the seriousness of crime that's motivated by prejudice because they don't provide an avenue for police to charge somebody with a particular type of crime. So the person's just charged, for example, with an assault, and then it's only at sentencing that the, the, the hatred is taken into account. When you look internationally, for example, at the UK or the US, you see the operation of laws there that give police an avenue to actually charge somebody, for example, with a crime that's racially aggravated or religiously aggravated. And that sends a very clear and a very distinct message of denunciation that's much more powerful than anything that we have in Australia. That was Gail Mason, a professor of criminology at the University of Sydney, speaking with Informer reporter Nicholas Kamenier-Sandry. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. The internet is changing the way we speak, sometimes in good ways, sometimes in not-so-good ways. Linguist Gretchen McCulloch spoke to Informer reporter Arian Potts about her new book, Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language. Arian started by asking Gretchen how she got interested in language and linguistics. So I feel like a lot of linguists, I have a hard time turning the linguist part of my brain off. Mm-hmm. So if you get me at a party, and I'll be trying to listen to you, but I'll also secretly be kind of analyzing your vowels at the same time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, especially when I was in Australia last year, I was like, oh, this is very interesting. I can't understand it. I, uh, I have to analyze everything. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> so it was very fun. Uh, and uh, so I spent a lot of time on the internet, like a lot of people, and uh, just seeing uh, the ways people communicate online. Sometimes something people be doing something that I didn't understand, and trying to figure out how to do that more, or figuring out uh, when when there were miscommunications happening, or when there was something new that was going on, mm-hmm. uh, and wanting to know what was going on. And it seems like uh, so I wrote a few uh, shorter pieces about internet language. And it felt to me like there was more there uh, that I wanted to explain in a longer format that I could really dig deep into rather than these kind of one-off pieces that had to stand by themselves. And also that people would be interested in reading more about it. One of the first things that I wrote about Internet Linguistics was uh, for The Toast, uh, the early departed website, The Toast. uh, And it was an analysis of the Doge meme, Mm -hmm. the one with the Shiba Inu and the sort of spaced out uh, comic fans, multi-color comic fans. Yep. And, uh, yeah, and it's not really current meme anymore. Uh, I'm not trying to claim that it is, but it was sort of thinking about how has internet language changed even since the earlier stages of the internet, like since mm-hmm. the, the 90s or the early 2000s. There's a tendency to um, think of all internet language as kind of part of the same phenomenon. But like any linguistic variety, it also changes over time. And some of the slang that was current in the 90s is no longer what people say, or when people do say it, they say it kind of sarcastically. So 
you know, using like GR number eight to mean like, oh, that's sarcastic good. That doesn't mean like it's actually great the way that it might have meant in the 90s or using those sort of sparkles, uh, you know, the asterisks and the tildes to indicate a sort of ironic or sarcastic enthusiasm rather than a genuine excitement mm. uh, is, a, is a shift that has happened uh, in in more recent years. One example that I also saw on Tumblr uh, was someone saying, when I say FTR number eight, straight people with the with a number eight in it, <laughs> that's, that's this more kind of ironic distance that I'm sure I do not fully completely understand, but there's a, there's a relevant example for the show. Yeah, in the the early 2000s, there was a, a big thing about, you know, if you were gay online chatting, you might write boy, B-O-I. Mm-hmm. To indicate you were playful or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Like indicate you don't you don't take yourself too seriously. Or I also like to think of it as you're not putting your you're putting yourself very deliberately in a position where you don't have a leg to stand on when it comes to criticizing someone else's language by preemptively mm-hmm. sort of doing something that someone might criticize you for. Uh, and therefore, it's kind of like when you tell a self-deprecating joke at the beginning of a public speech. They're sort of like, look at me, I'm down to earth. I don't take myself too seriously. Uh, this is the kind of social situation that I'm trying to create. You talk a little bit about how queer people uh, use language to sort of hide within, like it's a, it's a code, really. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, so the portion um, where I talk about this in Because Internet is this idea that in the internet setting a lot of things that are a lot of you know um a lot of times when we're putting words out there we're putting uh words out there where a lot of people can see them but we only want certain people to interact with them we want to try to appeal to a particular audience even when that audience isn't necessarily exactly the same kinds of people that uh, as are seeing them it's a subset of that so your sort of classic example and i think this was more true a couple of years ago especially when people were still when younger people were still on Facebook, <laughs> whereas these days a lot of younger communities have migrated elsewhere <laughs> yeah. precisely to avoid this sort of circumstance. But there was at least a period of a couple years where you'd make some sort of Facebook post that you were kind of thinking of as for your friends, and then your mom or your uncle or your like, you know, grandma or something would come on and say, Hi, so and so just say one to say anything you want to you call me anymore? And you'd be like, Mom, I'm trying to talk to my friends here. <laughs> 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 you remember those days? And like, stop, stop making me not look cool in front of my friends. Like, I, I didn't say you could kiss me that, that much. <laughs> um, and I think now both people on, people understand Facebook as a context. Like, if I see a comment like that on one of my friends' statuses on Facebook, I'm like, oh, this person also has relatives. I, I know how it is. I don't, <laughs> I don't think badly of that person anymore. I'm like, oh, this is just this person's Aunt Brenda or whatever uh, commenting, you know, like signing the posts and this kind of stuff. stuff. Uh, and, uh, but I think there was a period when it wasn't necessarily clear that multiple generations would have Facebook yeah. and where there hadn't been so much of a younger person's exodus to Instagram and Twitter and Tumblr and all of these places where you can just kind of post to a more defined group. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were trying to kind of code your statuses so that they would, your parents wouldn't feel like they could get them enough or they wouldn't even feel like they could, could know what was going on. Um, and also as part of this, you know, there was, there was a lot of controversies about like, can everybody who sees your Facebook profile see which groups you were in? Yeah. Um, so I remember people talking about at the time, like, oh, if you're in your you know, universities, um, like, 
like queer youth whatever group or like mm-hmm. you know here's a bunch of like queer basketball players or something group um queer choir like oh now you're aunts and uncles like suddenly realize that you're gay because they're seeing that you're joining these groups uh and facebook doesn't prevent that happening kind of privacy setting wise uh and i think facebook is kind of the privacy settings have changed a bit there and the um you know where people where people join groups has has changed to a certain extent but there is some um people posting like okay if i'm going to post song lyrics from this song and my friends know that this is actually like a tegan and sarah song but my mom just like thinks it's some words <laughs> um, or like you know here's this here's this pop culture reference that i'm going to post from this you know show that was on last night that i'm from the l word or something yeah and my mom's not going to get it yeah she's probably asking what l word is it it's love mom it's love <laughs> <laughs> so do you think so, like, you get this in a variety of contexts you get this in a variety of contexts so there's there's a clear use for it there's a like teenage use for it of like teenagers don't want their parents to be able to understand everything that's going on uh, any kind of group that wants to try to hide something from one group in some mm. context uh you get this happening is it is it in some ways sort of like um a modern pig latin i mean pig latin is another way of hiding stuff it's not and this this sort of thing isn't a uniquely internet phenomenon yeah. i also think of it as like you know if you have like a young kid or you have like if there's a young kid in the environment or there's a dog or something and the dog has learned the word walk mm-hmm. and knows that if you say walk that this means to start getting excited and so now you need to be able to talk about walking the dog with your other human <laughs> to yeah. <laughs> uh, you don't need the dog to it. So you might like spell it out loud. Like, are we taking the dog on a W A L K soon? Yeah. Or is your is your kid allowed to have some C A K E? You know, because you don't want this like four year old to know what's going on. You're like, I found the code that the small children can't understand. It's called spelling out loud. Um, <laughs> you know, pig Latin, or sometimes shifting into another language, uh, or you know, there's a variety of ways of sort of hiding things in plain sight and. Sometimes pop culture references do them, and sometimes other other formats do them as well. Um, but yeah, it's not exclusively an internet thing for sure. Arian was speaking to Gretchen McCulloch about Because Internet, understanding the new rules of language available now. This is The Informer on Joy 94.9. You and I were in the same English class in 2006, and you would draw pictures of girls' asses. And that's when I knew that you, you liked girls' asses. You sat there in your plain white t-shirt between Tim and Susan. And I could see your nipples through your t-shirt. I'm only human. How can I resist you?
Jude Pearl singing her song Hamish. She was on Joy TV last week. It's, <laughs> uh, I think we can all relate. Uh, yeah. Um, late last year, uh, there was a large Extinction Rebellion protest on Prince's Bridge in Melbourne. This is the bridge that it goes from Pl- Flinders Street Station and takes St. Kilda Road down past the Art Center, etc. Uh, it's a pretty critical thoroughfare, and it's on the world's busiest tram line. It was a protest that got a fair amount of attention and disrupt- disrupted a fair amount of traffic, although it was on a weekend. Um, Nicholas Kamenyer Sandry went to the protest, and he got a really interesting audio piece that we'd like to play for you now. If you are around Flinders Street last Saturday, you may have seen a blockade of police and protesters denying access to Prince's Bridge. It was a demonstration by the Extinction Rebellion, a worldwide moment, movement dedicated to political action on climate change formed in May of last year in the UK. The Extinction Rebels shut down Prince's Bridge for most of Saturday in what was a peaceful protest. Many of the protesters were arrested by Victoria Police and let go on the scene. One of the Informer's reporters was on the scene to get the story. This is Nicholas Kamenia-Sandri. I'm at Prince's Bridge in Melbourne CBD. This afternoon, up to 1,000 protesters uh, occupied the bridge, delaying trams and traffic. The protest was peaceful, with some demonstrators uh, blocking the road, asked by police to leave and getting arrested. I spoke with two protesters about why they're here. First, I spoke with Dr Christine Canty. So Extinction Rebellion is a a grassroots movement and we are here today to be blocking the road to to cause disruption. And the reason that we want to do that is that the research tells us that the disruption is the the best way to create change. The science tells us that we need drastic change now. So we've got three demands and that is that we're asking our government to tell the truth and uh, declare a climate and ecological emergency, act now to address that and create a citizens assembly to be able to guide that process. You know, the reason for causing such large levels of disruption, the reason for choosing the middle of the day and choosing a bridge that is going to block so much is that what we need to do is have the opportunity to do exactly this, to be able to get our message out. And personally, I feel that I've got, as I say, four young children and I'm so concerned about their future. I would much rather be with them at the park and playing with them on a beautiful day like today. But I feel like I have absolutely no other choice than to come out here and help to block the traffic so that we can get our message out there. One of the people arrested told me his story. Here's Brad Homewood. Uh, I signed up to... I'm a member of Extinction Rebellion. I signed up to be an arrestable today with a, along with about 100 other people. I was sitting in the group at the front, what we call the bunnies. We're the sacrificial group. Uh, I was about the fifth or sixth person arrested. The officer came up to me, informed me that I was breaking the law and that if I didn't leave, I would be arrested. I said, all due respect, officer, but I have no intention of leaving this bridge of my own free will, at which point they come in to arrest me. I laid back. Uh, They moved around me, they picked me up, they carried me off the bridge. When we got to about the van, they said, do you want to walk now? I said, I'm happy to walk now, I dropped my feet. Uh, They put my arms up my back. I made a point of telling the police that I have no issue with them, that I know they have a job to do and that I respect that. Uh, And that really changed the Uh, demeanour. After that, we just pretty much talked to each other as if we were people. Uh, They checked my pockets, they asked me to empty my pockets, they took my badge off, they took my patch off because I had pins. I took my shoes and socks off to make sure I had nothing in my socks. They took a photo of me. They uh, notified me that I'd been arrested and what I'd been arrested for. Uh, and then they let me go. It was, it was a very civil process and it didn't take long at all. I would like to encourage everyone to uh, 
have a good look at the science and what the science is telling us. For, for all the international conferences, for all the political rhetoric, uh, for all the emissions pledges, the simple fact is this. Global emissions are still rising. Not only are they rising, we are currently on a trajectory to four degrees above average warming. If we hit two degrees, we won't be able to halt the warming. The feedback loops will kick. If we get to four degrees, the science tells us the Earth will only be able to sustain about one billion people, maybe even half that. Because once, once the climate collapses, you can't grow food anymore, and then the society collapses. Uh, it's a terrifying prospect. I guess I just want to add to all the people out there who are listening this that the, the, the one, the single greatest thing that you can do at this point in time as an individual is to vote with your feet, not just at the elections, but every single day. Join in in the civil disobedience. We know that this is the, this is the best way for change to, to take, um, for change to actually happen. So if you've only got a limited amount of time for a week, don't worry about doing your gardening and your veggie patch and your composting. Do all of those things if you can, but try and prioritise getting out there, being part of some collective change and making sure that that change happens. Thank you very much. That was Nicholas Kamenia-Sandry at the Prince's Bridge on Saturday. And a huge thanks to Carl Evans for providing the audio for that story. Well, that's it for the Informer Daily today. I'd like to thank Nicholas Kamenia-Sandry... Dee Mason, Emily Johnson, Jordan Johnstone, Rachel Tyler Jones, and Ange Berry, and all the lovely people at the Community Radio Network for their support. I'm your host and executive producer, Arian Potts, um, and we'll be back tomorrow talking about National Volunteer Week. Mahalo. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.